a very surprising source of um, fairly decent literature out there that falls under this this genre that you know I, I never would have suspected could be so enlightening and. Hi everyone, welcome back. Today we'll be talking about a surprising source of values and where to find them. Because in today's society, as we've been talking about for uh, most of this year so far, there there are a lot of a lot of crazy things going on in western culture and society at the moment. And they've been going on for several years last five at least, but with trends tracing back even before then. And it seems like there aren't very many sources to go to for either an affirmation of existing values or even to to introduce those values. There is almost a concerted effort. Well, I think there's a concerted effort on, the, on behalf of several groups, individuals, ideologies to actually destroy the existing value structure of any existing society in which these people can be found. And that seems to be what's playing out. And you can see just symptoms of this, if not actual, um, if not that actual intention in practice in things like Hollywood or TV. And I think this, there is a lot of deliberate stuff that goes on, I think in the, the writing of pop culture, but I think a lot of it too is just downstream of of that ideology and what's going on kind of on another level. Just like philosophical ideas filter down into the way people actually what people actually think and how they behave, I think a similar sort of thing goes on in Hollywood. So when you look at the the trends in TV and in movies for the past several years, we can see a few things, one of which we've talked about before. I think we talked about it in our shows on Erturul, the Turkish TV series, is in Western in Western TV, there's a trend to um, what we called then, I think, like hyper-realism in the sense of showing human nature at its worst and usually without much, if any, redemptive qualities to it. So you'll see people behaving badly, essentially, and it pretty much gets left at that. So an example of that is a show like Game of Thrones, Um, but not the only one. You can see it, I mean, what we were thinking of a list like uh, Game of Thrones, Westworld, um, even The Wire. And there are some really good shows, but there there are some really, well, even in that show when we were talking about it, we said there, there are things to be gleaned and learned from dark, you know, dark subject matter or a, a, a representation of of humanity at its worst. But when that's all you have, then you're missing something. It's like growing up without fairy tales or um, kids' stories and just watching like mindless cartoons that don't necessarily model and instill um, any kind of values. Mm-hmm. And so what we see is we see that played out in behavior, I think, and in the way that that people just live in the world and the way they act, that if they have no source of these values, then they're not going to um, they're not going to act them out 
to any great degree in their ordinary lives. So, there, we, where do I want to go from there? We talked about a show like Air to Rule, which seems to, well, which does present certain values and ideals that are lacking in Western shows. And then, okay, now here's what I want to do. So whenever there is a source of that in English-speaking culture, it gets shot down. It's almost like it can't exist. And we see this in cancel culture, for instance, and the types of people and organizations and institutions that get canceled. So it's not just far-right ideologies or people or groups for right now that are victim of that, of getting canceled. It is pretty much anything traditional. Anything, uh, it could be just mainstream Christianity, any kind of like church organization, well, any kind of Western church organization. And this all comes down, comes back to critical race theory and the, the and it's, it's family of ideologies, critical theories. So wokeness in a sense, uh, social justice. So anyone espousing a kind of traditional value that is, there's, there's no value to that. There's no value to traditional values because the express purpose of wokeness and of social justice ideology is to destroy Western civilization as we know it. Everything that, all, all, the entire value structure, all of the institutions, the express goal is to destroy them and remake them in the image of wokeness, in the image of social justice. And some people think that's a good thing, but of course, I don't think very many people actually do, but some do, and they've made it their goal to achieve that. So, when you have any kind of symptom or sign of a traditional structure like that, a traditional belief or worldview, then it is written off as somehow part of the oppressive structure of Western society. And that will be labeled as racist, sexist, transphobic, etc. All the isms and obics out there, phobics, that that's the label that will be applied to them. So you, it and it gets it it gets to ridiculous. It approaches ridiculous limits. For instance, when you have the the Dr. Seuss family or the estate, and they're they're publishing, saying they're going to remove six books, six of Dr. Seuss's books for you know, questionable racial representations within them. You, what, are, what are some other ones? So they've, we've had Dr. Seuss get canceled. Um, what, well, what other ones come to mind? I, w I wasn't thinking so much in terms of uh, literature as the kind of movement towards um, giving boys who display toxic masculinity mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the correct education uh, so-called uh, instruction via schools to kind of uh, drum out the the propensities, the behaviors, the actions, the thoughts that make young men and boys, uh, or rather, make this kind of natural process of of what is sometimes considered bad behavior a a, a moral wrong. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, of course, you're going to have. You know, and, and 
any one of us here, I'm sure, knew, knew some bad kids who displayed overly aggressive behavior and were basically assholes and treated people terribly and were maladjusted and, and socially uh, kind of antisocial. And obviously, you know, there, there is something to be said for addressing serious cases. But when you, when you lump in... But that's all, not toxic masculinity, like per se. It's not that that is right. like masculinity and toxic. You don't need this special word Mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. to identify what was wrong at the time that's the that's misidentifying what the problem is the the real issue was the pathology of uh the the individuals in question it wasn't some like toxic masculinity well, or whatever but well you could you could say it started out there's a there's a progression of terms so you've just got masculinity then we get this idea of to- toxic masculinity which seems to be addressing a subset of typically masculine behaviors, which there is some empirical truth to. For instance, pretty much all serious violent crime, rape and murder is committed by men, a small, a small percentage of men. So you could, there, you could make a case that behaviors like that could be called toxic masculinity because there's masculinity, which is the vast majority of men, and then there's a toxic variety of you know, a, a single-digit percentage of men that engage in activities like that. Mm-hmm. crimes like that so you can say that's toxic you can you can say that's toxic masculinity but what we ha- what you then have is so you've got masculinity that gets and then you've got toxic masculinity which is a tiny subset of of the the first category but what you have now is that subset is now being applied to all masculinity right so any any sign any any display any display or manifestation of actual masculinity then gets called toxic masculinity Mm -hmm. so and and even that will approach ridiculous proportions so just like you have dr seuss getting uh blacklisted certain books like it's ridiculous it doesn't need to happen right it's not like dr seuss is ruining any lives with some of his child's with his kids stories but you also get something like um something analogous that plays out in actual life one example of which is um the the whole idea of rape culture for instance that's another that's another thing it's the same process that is played out where you have that small percentage of of men and some women but a smaller percentage of women who rape people and then that gets inflated into this idea of a rape culture where rape is endemic and pretty much everyone is, is engaging in it and the definitions actually change. So if you look at how some social justice ideologues have defined rape, pretty much any any sexual encounter can be defined as rape so that all men then are now rapists. And Heather MacDonald has a, a, talks about this um, in a really good book. I, I, I got the book and I read it because Jordan Peterson recommended it and I'm glad that I did just because it's a really good book, uh, The Diversity Delusion. She has uh, several chapters in which she talks about this whole phenomenon and just how ridiculous it is. And when you actually look at these cases where things that basically, it, in this specific example of rape culture, what it comes down to is that several things which in no way could be or should be defined as rape are getting classified as rape. Mm-hmm. And And that, it's just a whole a whole world of crazy to the point where in a lot of American universities, 
and not just universities just uh, you can find it in articles in like online outlets and newspapers calling for like standards of consent for instance where they because the way they've defined consent and rape and anything sexual then verbal explicit consent is required for basically every stage of a sexual encounter and it is and not just each new stage of the encounter but every continuous yes. like continuation of an already right. established is this like, is this still okay do yeah. i still have your consent it's like um they, so they take something where there's a kernel of of truth to it just like with toxic masculinity and the fact that yes you know at at some point um especially in college campuses and like feelings can change even in the moment it's like if someone says no i'm not okay with this at that point well that's a pretty explicit um statement of you know this is not okay but that doesn't change that to, to the point where if if either partner doesn't say anything and seems to be enjoying uh, a sexual encounter then the fact that they didn't say anything, the fact that neither says anything and each goes along with it, and even if they're texting each other afterwards saying, oh, what a great time they had, that either one of those two people could be a rapist, according to the way they, they define these things. That's what I'm talking about. How uh, That's what I mean when I say that it approaches these ridiculous dimensions, the, these, this absurd, these absurd dimensions to the point where it's, it's like you're living in a bizarro world because some of these cases are exactly like that, where two people will have and they're not even blackout drunk which a lot of these cases have to do with which is a tricky case um and there's you know it's a whole other story but two consenting adults you know young adults and even in a even in a relationship with multiple sexual encounters and sexual um interactions where at some point in the future one of those two people will then decide Oh well, actually, no. I I changed my mind now, so my consent that was given at that point is no longer valid. So it's like a, retro, a retroactive um, reversal of consent, and then the way that the the university tribunals are set up, the accused isn't allowed access to a lawyer or access to the evidence or or the ability to defend themselves actually like in that tribunal so it's pretty much a kangaroo court and there are a lot of there are a lot of issues like legitimate issues i think when it comes to sexuality in, in particular and especially on college campuses that have implications and ramifications for all kinds of other things not just limited to the to university and, and like college campus culture everything from childhood and wider society but regardless of that there's things have have gotten so polarized to the point where it's like you you can imagine the the most toxic situation mm -hmm. and and the problems in involved in that and it's kind of things have spiraled to like the the total opposite of a toxic situation but treating it as if it as if it's even as bad or worse than that those toxic examples. Yeah. And, and just to be clear, um, you know, I've, I've personally known women who were, uh, 
debate raped and and um, abused and um, it happens and and maybe it even happens uh, at a level of frequency that isn't reported that's possible too um, what we're talking about here what we're zeroing in on I think is the idea that all or or a a, a very broad eye is being leveled uh, at sexuality and what is very conventional male behavior uh, in many cases that, that isn't necessarily um, aggressive. And that's up for debate too, I suppose. But there's this, uh, it's, this is all part of, there, there are so many different ways in which there is a kind of subjective, arbitrary, new set of criteria that's being foisted upon people where the role models of correct and appropriate behavior and thinking uh, and being are being kind of withdrawn uh, and and pulled right out from under many individuals. And it's got to be a very confusing time right now to to grow up as a teenager or even a person in their early 20s mm-hmm. because... Uh, what we're what we're getting at, and I think what we'd like to discuss here today, is the lack of healthy role models that that we're not seeing and are aren't being necessarily represented by our parents or even our teachers, or I should say our teachers or even our parents, and and we want to discuss, I think, where role models um, might might be found. Well, not just role models, but an actual value system. Because I know Heather McDonald, the way she explains it, she tells a story. And I, I think she's got a point. I, I think I might even agree with her, like in the broad strokes, is that what happened in American society, American culture, was in the 60s you had the the like sexual revolution, not just the sexual revolution, but a whole consciousness consciousness revolution is I think how um, the fourth turning guys put it. But you had a total a total um, restructuring of in this specific case sexual norms. So in uni- on university campuses, for instance, you had um, strict like sexual segregation, so you couldn't have so this would be in like the fifties and beforehand. You like you you didn't have coed um, campuses or coed um, dorms. dorms or anything like that, and you, had, you still had the idea of chaperones and and the idea that um, like the for for men and women the idea was that every like society was basically structured on the idea that that it was obvious that men wanted sex and it was obvious that women would um, withhold sex. And that you basically had to court a woman. Uh, the man had to court court the woman, date her, and probably get married in most cases, or in a lot of cases, in order to establish that relationship. And then for for those sexual energies to then, um, you know, have a, um, a a means of being expressed, essentially. And that got totally turned upside down because that was uh, from the feminist perspective that was treating women like um like children that they needed a it was it was the the male's responsibility to um to protect them 
and to to basically coddle them in some sense and it was like no we want freedom we want the we want the freedom to be able to walk on the street on our own and we want and then that's has has got to the point of we want the the freedom to basically well what it became was what we have now which is the, just a sexual free for all uh, of casual sex and the the those previous norms are no longer around where it's like there um there's no impediment to that sexual relationship so you have this hookup culture and this is and what what has happened is that it is it has created the 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 call for a new type of puritanism puritanical approach to to gender relations where now there's a strict policing of of the the sexual lives of of um of college students are basically asking for it this is this is what you see with with these um, like rape tribunals and things like that where it's now society's role to to protect women from the sexual advances of men but it's in this there's this contradiction in the sense that it's totally like uh, Mm -hmm. a free license um like free-for-all like a sexual free-for-all and on the other hand it's but sexual sexuality needs to be tightly regulated because it's because it's so out of control and bad. Well, it's it's cognitive dissonance inducing mm-hmm. is what it is. Yeah, uh, which which gets back to my point about this being uh, a very confusing time. I think mm-hmm. because you know by by the same token, you also have this other development of of what some call simp's or you know mm-hmm. very um, very weak males who adore. Uh, females to a kind of almost um you know just an an unhealthy degree there's no there's no agency on the part of Mm -hmm. the male there is no uh there's there's nothing about the male as a male that's integrated or uh individuated or um or knows what he is aside from being this kind of adjunct or i mean i don't i don't don't even know how to describe this but it does seem uh it does seem like a very real development among a lot of males in in western culture right now there was a study that came out i think a year or two ago where they were looking at uh the number of male virgins under the age of I want to say it was 30. Um, and they had statistics, statistics going back like 30 years or more. Um, you know, quite a, quite a large amount of data uh, to be able to look at, you know, the trend of, you know, how uh, young men are or how many young men are sexually active at, you know, certain points at, at young ages. And, it was within the past, I think it was starting in 2017, 2016, where you had um, like the number of male virgins at, I think, 20. I think by the age of 20, there was like only 10% of, of male virgins up until that point. And then all of a sudden it shot up to 27%. Mm-hmm. So there was this large increase in the number of men who were avoiding uh 
having a s- intimate relationship with uh, with anyone, uh, which I think indicates something. Mm-hmm. We can debate whether you know what it exactly was the cause of it, but I think we've kind of hashed out a couple of possible reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think it does indicate that you know what you were talking about, Alon, that there is something going on that is creating a disturbance or an impediment to the natural healthy engagement of the sexes i guess you could say mm-hmm. there's a, a couple things on that i i'm reading Abig- abigail schreier's book uh, irreversible harm one of the things she points out there is that I'm pretty sure it was the the majority, something like it might have been 70% of the young girls who um, who identify as transgender and who, you know, use things like, um, um, oh, what are those binders, you know, to to flatten their breasts and to take to- take, um, take t- testosterone treatments that some, I'm pretty sure it was 70% of them that might be another figure I'd have to double check, have never had a relationship before, either with a a boy or a girl. So they've never had a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And in the context of some other things that Schreier was talking about, that makes sense because a lot of these girls, it seems, because, no, I think it was 70, I think it was 70% of girls, 70% of transgender um, cases are, are girls in this age range, whereas it used to be that there were no girls and it was all young boys, like prepubescent boys who, um, who had gender dysphoria, but, um, it was still a large percentage of, uh, of these girls have never had a relationship. And part of what that has to do with is that there, it happens, usually happens after puberty, this rapid onset gender dysphoria. And a lot of these girls are, um, really uncomfortable with their bodies and it seems that the transgender like ideology is a way of giving them it gives them an outlet um not only for self-harm but um because there is this weird almost like masochism that goes along with it where um that's just one issue where they they the the pain involved in either like testosterone shots or wearing binders, it's almost ecstatic. Um, and a lot of these girls um, were engaging in self-harm either before or and or during um, the, you know, when they actually um, transition. And so there's the, the, the harm aspect to it, but what did I say? That it's, uh, it's like an outlet. So, so by identifying now as a boy, you no longer these girls no longer no longer have to feel uncomfortable that their female bodies don't live up to uh, whatever the female standard is. Mm-hmm. And this all has to do like there's so many things going on here. Um, a big one of which is social media. This is one of the things that uh, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff talk about in Coddling of the American Mind is that. Um, social media is terrible, especially for young girls, because um, young girls, the way, well, the, the way that um, aggression comes out in young girls, it is mostly verbal and it's, it's gossiping and it's, um, it's talking about the, the way other girls look. 
And then when you're on social media, there's the competition to put up your selfies and things like that. And then you get exposed to immediate and permanent, because um, it's always there, um, criticism of your looks. So this has made, this has contributed to just skyrocketing rates of depression and anxiety in teenage girls. And so you put all that stuff together and more that I haven't even mentioned, and it's, it's not a good time to be a teenager. So just those few th things that we've mentioned, it's um, just the, the toxic effects of, of social media, the, the lack of actual physical contact with other people, because it used to be that girls and boys, they hung out together at each other's houses, on the streets, um, in shopping malls. Now all of the most, the vast majority of interactions are online. Um, kids don't hang out with each other anymore. They don't have someone to, um, to just commiserate with when something bad happens. And you don't have a small group of friends that, uh, that you can actually talk to in person. It's everything is depersonalized and, um, limited to these artificial, like, um, digital interactions. And so you'd have, you have kids who aren't interacting with the other sex in a way that has been more or less normal for, you know, the entire history of humanity before, um, before all these, uh, new technologies have come on board. Even if, even if that has, even if the, the forms of interaction have changed and are different in cultures and there's different things going on, there was still at least physical interaction and um and social engagement so but now there's this depersonalization there's the, the skyrocketing mental illness and the which has contributed to this um the the kind of the epidemic of um gender dysphoria and the the lack of interaction with the opposite sex combined with when everyone goes to college this totally backwards um, system of uh, courtship. It's not even a system of courtship. It's just, it, I don't even know what it is. And so there are pretty much wherever you look, you can just like close your eyes and randomly throw the dart at the dartboard and find something wrong, something weird, something strange, weird, wrong, pathological. There, It's just a, a mess and a maze of weirdness and just and during all of this as we mentioned a bit earlier to then bring in an actual value system that has been let's say like let's say tried and tested a traditional value system which may be flawed we can get into that at least it works um that is then written off um like paramoralistically in the sense that to then try to introduce a moral framework, a traditional moral framework, one of any number of traditional moral frameworks, you're then the evil person because that is a, that all traditional systems that are, let's say live options for um, anyone living in uh, at least an English speaking world in, in the English speaking world today any of those previously live options are systems of white supremacy 
and um and the patriarchy etc like you know they they are they are all evil so you can't even bring in a an alternative because all the alternatives are actually morally repugnant according to this ideology and so what options are you left with well in in mainstream like public culture you can't get away with anything um if you are let's say a traditional uh, if you're a if you're a christian or just re religious to any degree if you're a, a conservative religious person in any religious tradition you can be vocal about it but you won't be um to be vocal about it is to the, to expose yourself to the wrath of the like the the online mad dogs of social justice. Mm -hmm. So, where where do you look? Well, so I started out by saying there's a there's actually a, an interesting source, uh, an underground stream of um, of hidden knowledge and <laughs> and and traditional values. Uh, th so this is this is interesting. Um, so in this climate, you, where anything traditionally is like publicly rebuked as, um, as evil and, um, patriarchal and bigoted and xenophobic and sexist and whatever, there's still a lot of romance novels that are getting sold and read by primarily by women. So this was very interesting. So we've been uh, experimenting and reading romance novels to see what's going on there. Now, there are a whole lot of types of romance novels, right? Um, I remember um, I had, I've never, or I had never read any romance novels. Like I enjoy a romantic comedy every once in a while. And uh, especially like um, uh, a period piece, um, like BBC, whenever they're, uh, some of their productions of you know some of the classics I've enjoyed those and I remember a talk that uh, Jordan Peterson gave where he just, you know was just throwing out something you know throwing out facts here and there and he was talking about um, the like men and women and like the the types of pornography that men and women prefer and that for for men of course it's visual pornography but women prefer actually um, reading like uh, an actual story, and he was talking about the 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 top selling um, female like uh, well top like sexual object um, archetypes for that appear in um, you know stories for women like this, and they were like the vampires and like uh, pirates, pirates or whatever they were like. So these kind of ch um, cheesy like. Uh, Stereotypes. stereotypes yeah but there is nestled like nestled within the 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 romance world there are there's at least one i don't know there there might be more but i'm not familiar with them but there's um a genre in the romance uh, the wider romance genre that's called regency romance so it's basically just romance novels set in the regency period in like the early eight, the early 1800s, like Napoleonic War era. And it's just um, essentially romance stories told in that period. There's a whole bunch of authors. Um, 
but the ones the the one that um, we're going to talk about is um, a Welsh Canadian um, named Mary Balog, who's quite prolific. Has written like ninety three or something uh, novels in her career, which is I think she's been writing for twenty thirty thirty five years. So that's like almost an average of three novels a year, and uh, she's actually really good. And so, just to sum up my point, and then I'll get your guys, uh, you guys to carry on. That within this, within this uh, this situation we have, where there's not only I'd say like a a lack of a value system a lack of a value system presented in a positive light, kind of like why we found air to rule to be such a, uh, a relief, like um, finding uh, water in the desert that within this world, uh, the Western world amid all of the like twilight and, um, and 50 shades of f- 50 shades of gray, gray. and it's and like related uh, themes and, uh, and topics you've got this uh this stream of very popular romance novels and maybe this is what we can actually do now is talk about what they how, what they actually portray but which um which have so far escaped cancel culture like i haven't seen any articles um in like huffington post or wherever or uh or buzzfeed or um any of the any of these outlets who regularly engage in this type of behavior. I haven't seen any, anyone calling out um, this type of romance. And so I, I hope that we don't unintentionally become responsible for. (laughs) Well, I I think there's a a good reason for that. And I think it's also the reason why, you know, I've never read any of these types of this genre of novel before. And that is in part because of how they're marketed. With the with the silly covers and and the you know the the, the Fabio the, covers the, the Fabio <laughs> covers and and the models and these sweeping sweepingly romantic uh, poses uh, with impossibly beautiful men and women who are in an embrace and and so there's a tendency at least there was in my part to uh, dismiss the entire genre as quite silly mm-hmm. and to my mind this was something that uh, you know frumpy, uh, mature women read as as an outlet. And at the end of the novel, if it was half good, they, they cried and they were silly women. And, um, and anyone who would read this type of material must therefore be a silly person. So that, that's what I brought to the table in, in starting, uh, to read some of these novels. And, um, much to my surprise, uh, the 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 covers of a lot of these novels are uh, fairly misleading, uh, because even if it isn't on the on the literary level of a Charles Dickens or a, a Dostoevsky or or a Jane Austen, there are still um, elements to these books, uh, values, character development that is being very articulately uh, conveyed in the thought processes of the the protagonists who were who were getting together and what we're what we're talking about i think not i think i know is the 
the development of the men and the women that these books uh, discuss. And yes, you you do have uh, a smattering of sexually explicit scenes um, where the the passions are conveyed, the sensations are described, the uh, the attraction is uh, is is fleshed out. No pun intended. But but this is um, in in the best of these novels, and we've been fortunate enough to read a few. Uh, it's organic. It is it is part of the emotional life of the individuals involved, and and even how, in fact, they they process these feelings for one another, where you know there is a tension between the the heart and the mind, so to speak, that gets um, resolved or or in the process of being resolved, and it's in that process. Uh, that these characters learn something and I think we as the reader get to learn something as well, especially when we're able to identify to some greater or lesser degree with the characters who have, who are, you know, acting out of their wounds, acting out of their past traumas, their programs. So, a very surprising source of um, fairly decent literature out there that falls under this this genre that you know I, I never would have suspected could be so enlightening in in some ways. There was, uh, you know, at the start of the show, I just you know was writing some stuff down, and it uh, kind of came to me of what um, a, an interesting contrast. Uh, and I wrote down an unexpected unexpected place to find virtuous ideals. And why I think that's kind of funny is because I never thought of reading romance novels or just romance novels in general as being a virtuous thing, uh, if that makes sense. Because it always seemed to me, at least from my religious upbringing, uh, to be something that was, you know, on the level of pornography. Uh, and it's moral, uh, on a moral dimension, it you know, is somewhat repugnant because of its uh, pornographic details of, of intimate relations. Um, so I, you know, coming back and look at it, looking at it now, it's just kind of funny that I, I see it as being virtuous because it does have a lot of virtuous people. Uh, just on the, from the standpoint of like you were saying, Alon, the the growth and the development of individual characters is just fantastic uh character growth character development that's one thing that i i like because i'd never read any of these novels before either so i had no idea what i was getting into and then you get into it and you're like holy crap this is some like this is good yeah. this is really good <laughs> like call me an old woman but geez. uh you know it takes you through the process of of having you know, putting yourself into the shoes of the characters and 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 feeling how they feel of of their past wounds and and their hurts and and then going through the process with them of of overcoming them, of finding the courage and the strength to to overcome their their previous you know roadblocks mm -hmm. with the help of you know their their newly found uh, love interests. 
um, which can be kind of silly at times, but it, on the whole, it's, it's fantastic. And so talking about it in terms of, you know, why, why it's been so good or why I think they are so good. I wanted to bring up uh, a passage from, uh, one of Balog's books, uh, it is Someone to Love, which is the first book of the Westcott series. Um, and there is uh, the female protagonist, Anna, who is a, a school teacher at an orphanage. Um, and she was talking to one of her, you know, other, one of her colleagues, and the, this colleague was talking about how... Um, it's amazing that she's able to get kids engaged in learning and excited to learn by telling, by getting them involved in, in this telling of stories. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to, to read this little bit. And this starts off with, uh, Joel, the, um, her, her colleague, your pupils, he said, are going to realize when they grow up that they have been horribly tricked. They will have all these marvelous story, stories rolling around in their heads, only to discover that they are not fiction at all, but that driest of all realities, history, and geography, and even arithmetic. You get your characters, both human and animal, into the most alarming predicaments from which you can extricate them only with a manipulation of numbers and the help of your pupils. They do not even realize they are learning. <laughs> You are a sly, devious creature, Anna. Have you noticed, and this is Anna responding, uh, straightening the counting frames to her liking before closing the cupboard doors and turning toward him, that at church, when the clergyman is giving his sermon, everyone's eyes glaze over, and many people even nod off to sleep. That was me. Me too. <laughs> but if he suddenly decides to illustrate a point with a little story... Everyone perks up and listens. We were made to tell and listen to stories, Joel. It is how knowledge was passed from person to person and generation to generation before there was the written word, mm -hmm. and even afterward, when most people had no access to manuscripts or books and could not read them even if they did. Why do we now feel that storytelling should be confined to fiction and fantasy? Can we enjoy only what has no basis in fact? And so that was, I think, a great illustration of why this is so good for people mm -hmm. and why uh, I, I would highly recommend it to everyone to, to read this you know, specific subset, this is a genre uh, of romance, because of the, not only the, the portrayal of ideals, but also the emotional insights Mm -hmm. that the authors have and Balog just she has so she's how many phds does she have because she's got to have like 18 <laughs> in terms of her understanding of psychology mm -hmm. but you have so you have that that you get that you learn it the the emotional um oh, what is the word the emotional intelligence yes you you get to increase your emotional intelligence and your ability to understand not only how these characters feel but also how you feel and this has been an, a, an interesting thing for me is because i've uh you know being 
you know, a male and having gone through, you know, my life as I did, I had blocked off a lot of emotions and a lot of repressed emotions and, and learning how these characters or going through the different processes with a number of these different books, I'm able to realize like, oh, that's what I've been feeling or, or that's what I was feeling at, you know, this previous time in my life. And so I'm able to resolve it. Mm -hmm. It's no longer stuck there at the back of my mind, just eating away at me doing whatever it's doing. And, and it's not only you, Adam, (laughs) it's not only you. I mean, you know, what these, what these books show is that these kinds of issues are very common to many people. We just don't know that they are, Mm -hmm. you know, we, we think that we're somehow special or we have the most damaged award, you know, or, you know, there's, there's some, uh, something extraordinarily wrong, maybe about one thing or another that, that makes us uniquely wrong for relationships when the relationship is, it's the process of the relationship. It's not, you know, it's not this fixed thing, uh, especially at the beginning. And that's really how a lot of these stories are structured. It's about the two characters getting together. It's about all of the things that they have to work on resolving within themselves and, and their uh, potential uh, partners uh, that would bring them forward uh, and, and actually become something even greater as a result. Because there's, uh, in many of these stories, not, not Balos in, in particular, there's this kind of um, manifestation of their, their bond that takes the form of fighting the, uh, the, the baddie, you know, the, the representation of the, of the kind of pathological male that, that is presented in the narrative to, to create a contrast with the, the protagonist who may have some issues but is basically someone who has a good heart and, and good intelligence and, and wants to do the right thing and is striving throughout the story to, to do the right thing despite you know, his, his shortcomings. And that is, uh, that reminds me that there is not, it's not a uh, tropish or just kind of, um, you know, bland and expected uh, kind of like storyline. Like they're all pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and But the thing is that nobody's really unidimensional. And that's another thing that I really like about this genre is that the women are women and the men are men and not some caricature of what men ought to be, which is one thing that I was kind of half expecting when I started this was that, that the men would be just this caricature of what masculine is mm-hmm. um, or what to be a male is. And it's not. Yeah. Well, you know, I, what, <clears throat> what that, what that might be, it's kind of like in, uh, in, it's kind of like conservatives and liberals. One of the interesting things I learned when reading Jonathan Haidt was that liberals do not understand conservatives. And when they're asked to give a representation of what they think conservatives actually believe, they get it wrong. Like they can't do it. But conservatives have a very good idea and a very good understanding of how liberals think and what liberals believe. 
It's a, and that has to do with their moral taste buds, as Height puts it. And it seems to be, maybe, maybe that's uh, something about uh, female and male authors, is that it turns out that, uh, you know, there's all the jokes about men not understanding women, which I think are totally true, but women really do understand men. <laughs> and uh, so, so these authors, because like, all of the authors that I've, I've encountered that I've, that I've seen are, are women, I don't, I don't, I'm not familiar with any male author that writes at least Regency romance. There might be some, and maybe if they, if they do exist, they use a, a female nom de plume, but, um, but it's, it's all women writers, and they, they've got a pretty good idea of what's going on. Well, I got to tell you, I mean, more than once I'm reading this, and I'd be like, how the hell do they know that? Yeah. You know? <laughs> And, and in a variety of, of uh, yeah. situations yeah. as well. It's like, wait, wait a minute. This is one author with an imagination, right? Maybe she's had some life experience. I'll, I'll grant her that. Maybe, maybe she wasn't married for 10 <laughs> or 20 years. <laughs> but, but there's a kind of a spectrum of, of insights into you know, male thinking that is... Uh, First rule of male club, you don't talk about male club. <laughs> yeah, it's not uncomfortable because she, it, it's respectful. Mm -hmm. uh you know it, it's it's she's honoring this is what it is i think in part anyway she's honoring what natural male and female behavior and thinking and attraction mm -hmm. looks like and what it is basically it's dealing with what is it's not yeah. it's not um pathologizing or uh twisting or uh or, or changing into some kind of ideological uh, perception of, of what normal male and female uh, thinking is, or mm -hmm. average male and female thinking. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it strikes home, and uh, it's a resource. That's, that's what I would say mm -hmm. about all of this. It is a real resource. Mm -hmm. You know, you could read, you could read a books, drier books about psychology and you'll gain some knowledge you can go to therapy and you can gain some knowledge uh you can discuss issues with intimates with people you trust and you can gain some knowledge you can also read these books in you know in the privacy of of your home and uh and enjoy them they're very entertaining and you will gain some knowledge mm -hmm. there i want to talk about a couple things and one is this element of what I think it, you could call catharsis. It's not just a matter of identifying with a character and let's say saying, oh, I see myself in that or, or, or something like that. There is that, but it is, I think it was like you were saying, Elon, it's the process. There is a, there is a formula to these novels, right? And, but within that formula, there's endless variation. So it, it never gets boring. The formula is essentially man meets woman conflict resolution and you know getting married it's pretty much how, how they all play out but of course that's the that's the story of of humanity and look at how many humans there are and have been so you've got a lot of a lot of variety within that formula but it is the process that that plays out um on mary balog's website she recently had a blog post about how she writes and you know what goes into her, her writing process and um, I didn't read it in the last few days, so so I'm just going on memory here. But she she basically it writes about how she like 
what happens in, in these novels and how she how she writes these characters. And just like a lot of authors, she, she says that she doesn't know where her ideas come from. They just come to her and the characters exist. It's like she, she shapes them and forms them, but they often tell her how the story is going to proceed. So she might have an idea that it's going to go one way, but as the scene, as the scene and the, the plays out, things change and they reveal something to her. And it's like, and she's trying to figure these characters out too. And of course, with a goal in mind, you know, the goal will be to, to work something out, you know, in the self and with the, and with the, the partner, um, to, to come to that resolution. And that means that there's going to have to be an element of personal transformation that goes on on both sides. So as you're reading this and as you're identifying with the character, there's something actually going on in your mind where you are actively identifying with this character. It's like a form of, um, of learning like children learning by um by mimicking and um like when an adult will do something the child will do it with them and that that's that's one form of how children learn but it's also just how the brain how the mind works i think so as you're experiencing these things with the characters especially if it's a character that that you can identify with for for um particular like similarities between your your positions and your psychology then you're actually your your emotional nature is essentially working out those problems, working out those processes with the character, and so um, the the catharsis is the is the experience of that is the experience within oneself of what the character of them themselves is experiencing. Mm-hmm. So you a part of you is actually transforming as the character transforms mm-hmm. if you can get in into the story. So there's actually there's more going on than just reading a, reading a, a nice story, you know, like you were saying, Adam, and reading a nice story and, and then crying and then uh, and oh, that's a that's a, a nice one. There's actually there's actually something more going on to it, and I, I want to talk a bit more about the kind of the formula because this ties in with how we started this, this started the discussion about um, the the current value system in Western culture. Because these stories all take place, uh, like they're all Regency romances, so there's, they, they all take place within the, the value system of the Regency period, which can be quite strange and funny on its own. And the way that the, the stories play out is often, um, there's this social, like, moral framework in which this element of society lives, right? There are their social norms, the way they, they have to interact, the way they're expected to interact, and the things they're expected to do. Now, most of these stories are um, a woman and or a man bucking the trend in some way. So going against the expectations of society, um, kind of, it, oftentimes the, the social structure is this oppressive force. Um, so, for example, there's... The, even though all the stories are about um, relationships that end up being loving relationships, um, the in within the stories, the norm is that that doesn't happen. That most people don't marry for love, for instance. So you get this view of a of the way that a society works and its social norms, which can be like uh, more or less accurate. It doesn't really matter for the purpose of the story. This is you can you can forget that this is like based in in reality in any way um it, you know that's it's kind of irrelevant it's it's a it's another world in a sense even though it's it's part of english speaking history but it's like 200 years 
it's 200 years old. It's like that society doesn't exist any longer. So for all intents and purposes, it might as well be just a, you know, a fictional world to some degree, but you have this, these social norms and expectations. And then the, it's the, it's the characters and that's part of the conflict. It's the characters, um, role in these stories to then navigate that world so to navigate um, like the scandals that they might find themselves embroiled in and the, the expectations on, on them that they might expect of themselves and then to transcend those expectations to some degree or to, or to if not transcend, then to um, like fit them in. You know, how, how, how will we negotiate like my, the, like these social expectations and the family expectations with what's what's actually going on, what can be resolved with others, what can be, what can be made to work and what can't be. So oftentimes the, the conflict will be, um, like one of the tropes is that, um, a man and a woman get caught in a compromising situation or one or the other intentionally puts the other in a compromising situation and then they have to get married because to, to not get married will then subject the woman to um, social stigma and her, her life will be ruined. Um, her, her character and her reputation will be ruined. So it's the man's job to then step in and, um, and ask for her hand in marriage to save her from the, the, uh, from the social stigma associated with, um, you know, being loose or something like that. And so, so that's just one of the, one of the tropes, one of the, one of the formulas within the formula of, of how these stories might work. And I, I want to read like, I've got a passage too from one of, uh, one of her older books. So this is from the, the gilded web. I think it was 89 or 1990 that it was first published in. So this is about, uh, two characters. The, the woman is Alexandra and she's right. She's been, um, she grew up in a very kind of isolated environment with a, a strict, um, like religious fundamentalist father, um, like just, a one of those, um, how to describe them, um, a father, like, uh, well, parents who are super strict. Um, so no, no interacting with very many people. Um, if you, if you did something wrong, it's a, a mortal sin that you, that you may have committed and you have to get right with, with God. And, um, so harsh punishments and strict, um, unrealistic expectations, very few signs of, of, um, an actual loving relationship. So this woman has had this very sheltered and, um, like abusive, um, upbringing, her brother too. And she gets put in one of these situations where, where she is then, um, um, tied with this, uh, with this guy, Edmund, and they have a a pretty rocky, um, like relationship for the majority of the story. And at one point, well, I'll, I'll just read a couple paragraphs and this will give the idea of what's going on. So she says to him, I was sickened by everyone's behavior last evening, she said in a low, rather hurried voice. It was bad enough that they chose to judge me so harshly for something that was none of my own fault. For that alone, I would wish to have nothing more to do with society for the rest of my life. 
What was worse was the way almost everyone changed as soon as you hinted that we might become betrothed. So he essentially saved her by coming in and, and exactly as she said, hinting that they would be married. So that removed the, the potential stigma um, against her. If last evening is an example of what gentility means, then I am ashamed of the name lady. So Edmund responds, You are quite right in your judgment. Unfortunately, Miss Purnell, there is no perfect person on this planet and certainly no perfect institution. Our society protects itself through its strict moral and social standards, and such high standards inevitably lead to corruption on the one hand and to the type of hypocrisy of which you have been a victim on the other. But perhaps it is possible to overreact. There are good, if not perfect, people in this world, and an institution can have its value even if it is flawed. So I thought that was not just good in the context of the story because because Alex herself has um, have some has some stuff to work through, um, and because of her upbringing that leads to almost a, a total rejection of the of this social structure that he's talking about and him um as f- for for edmund the the social structure has because he he actually had a, a good family it's actually provided him with the like it's provided him with the values that that he lives by that are actually authentic for him um not a not a form of just um um, like external, um, like, um, control, not external control. And what's the world virtue signaling and, um, and just like status or anything like that for him, he's actually internalized. So he's a good man, essentially. Um, he's got his stuff to work through too. But so I think that's not only, like I said, it's not only good for the story, but it's a, it's a good understanding of a moral system, uh, of any moral system. That like, like if you look at, if you read Righteous Mind, you know, what Jonathan Haidt says about, about morality. I mean, if you look at all, pretty much all moral systems, value systems that humans have developed, they're all uh, crazy in, in one sense or another, but they all have this at the same time, they all have their, their values, you know, um, go figure that, which Jonathan Haidt relates to, um, like heredity or like biology at the very root that that we all have these tendencies these moral taste buds um like um f- fairness liberty um you know whatever there's the this five or six uh, moral taste buds um sanctity uh disgust or purity yeah purity so there there's there's these taste buds that then the this the value system um takes a particular form which can be vastly different from another social system but but they're they're approaching the same things so you have uh this social system in this or this value system in this case in this regency thing um you have the the system which serves a purpose like edmund is saying and and yet, um, it will inevitably lead to corruption, just like all do. Mm-hmm. And that's where this like navigation comes in, where these characters have to kind of navigate their their way through. Because you can find characters in these books who are um, who are total villains or total hypocrites, um, who are totally shallow, um, who who are controlled to some degree by the moral framework that they live in, and you can see the purpose that it serves. But you can also see how it how it um 
that same system can then just target people, right? Can can target a person like Alex who, like she says, through no fault of her own, gets caught up in this situation where nothing essentially bad happens, but because of the way, because of what it could mean, and because of the way it might look, that can be uh, life ending, you know, to a certain degree, or or reputation ending. And so there's this navigation of not only the the, the uh, uh, all that potential bad stuff, mm-hmm. but to actually find within that system like a modus vivendi mm-hmm. um, to to actually live within it and to transcend it to some degree too. Right. So a lot of these characters will um, are so they're not socially maladjusted. It's not like they're um, either either like criminals or um, or hermits or anything like that. They don't they don't reject their the, the the world that they live in, but they manage to to live within it. Um, and I wouldn't even say it's a matter of compromise. It's it's uh, it's more a matter of um, like just personal authenticity and integrity that these characters manage to um, to have or to develop. And that's that's what I that's one of the things that that stands out the most for me is that these characters are um, they're actual characters like they're actual individuals and you have the kind of um, sociocentric like um, like communal expectations that these characters have to then um, it is that external like moral structure that they that that you do run up against and that and everyone rub, runs up against. Um, and then to, to actually find for oneself who you are, essentially who you are and who you aren't like, what are the things that, that have, who is the person that you think you are? And that might have to do with the, with the, the, the way you've been raised, the, the influence of your parents, the influence of, of um, this social structure, um, and then to find yourself within it, and then to, um, to, to just kind of to, to, to see and then become who you actually are um, authentically for yourself. That's, uh, that's one of those um, that's one of those aspects of, those, of, this, of these books that uh, stands out for me, I'd say that there's uh yeah that's an interesting aspect of all of it is each character is a character mm-hmm. you know sometimes the character can be really annoying uh and grating and sometimes the the characters are really funny uh just they're they're they are people you know real people which is you know cool and interesting and, and they like us in our real lives have to navigate the the waters of of society you know society whatever society you live in has certain expectations of you and you have to according to your own conscience uh navigate you know what is right and what is wrong according to the situation that you're in um and so yeah you have the struggles of each character who has you know maybe they have a certain title or you know they have a certain inheritance or you know they have certain social expectations that they have to you know, uh, resolve with, you know, who they are and who they want to be or what they used to want and, you know, come to some resolution that ultimately they can not only live with, but live with a purpose. 
and I, I, I think that's just you know a great way of of respecting you know the individual and and the struggle of figuring out who you are and who you want to be and how you uh, go about finding that out. But that hints at the the other aspect of a number of these authors, Mary Ballock in particular, where she doesn't just treat people with respect. She treats institutions with respect too. It's not just, you know, a caricature of, of, you know, what the society that they have is. It's, it's, you know, it was meant to do something. It, it has a purpose. It's not just there to make your life miserable. Right. Even if, you know, your life is miserable because of it. <laughs> there, there's even something uh, affirming in courting Julia about her, uh, Julia's, you know, this, this, uh, the scheme that, that sets the story in motion with the, you know, deceased, was it the grandfather, the step-grandfather who arranges for Julia to have to uh, make a, de a decision, a choice among her uh, cousins who aren't biological cousins uh, for a husband, which seems on the surface to be rather um, oppressive and controlling, but has this altogether different uh, purpose and 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 function and success um, that you you can't see right away without the development of the story. Uh, I did want to get back to something you were saying a few minutes ago, Harrison, about the you know this process of navigating because and how this the kind of um, period piece in which a lot of these novels are set in. Uh, is almost irrelevant because w what you're seeing is um, it's a it's a kind of uh, template for what successful work on oneself towards building a relationship may look like, at least in part. It, it's sort of the the DNA, the building blocks, if you will, of um, of this kind of work on oneself, and so even though we live in a very different uh, milieu and, and very different ideas about what's what right now, as we explained in the first third of the show, you know, th there are these essential pieces that are being presented here that seem to be universal and timeless and, um, and basic and intrinsic that we may benefit from that we can look to as as models um and and consider and there's something else too and that is that you know i'm i'm, I'm not only interested in how when i'm reading these novels and stories i'm not only thinking about how the male is the protagonist is handling himself and what he's experiencing but it is very interesting to get into the 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 mind of the female as well and to also kind of celebrate her her growth in it too um i so i think that i think that these stories work on a few different levels i i don't think it's only about you know the guy and your identification with the guy per se and speaking to the idea that 
these stories work on different levels um, is the uh, the emotions that get brought up. The kind of, you know, um, I think I described this to a few people. Uh, you know, there, there is there is this kind of, um, you know, that, that frumpy, mature woman who I imagined kind of getting emotional at the end of one of these novels, that's me, you know? I'm that, that emotional old woman. <laughs> that, uh, in a sense. I mean, it, 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 it's surprising. It's like, well, where, where did all that emotion come from? Where did all this feeling and, uh, you know, I, and I guess that gets back to the idea that these books do have a cathartic um, effect or in potential. That they that they work on a part of the the nervous system, the mind, the heart, uh, you know, the the however you want to describe it, that isn't as uh, front and center or as easily recognized or described as we as we like to think, because we're you know we we are in a very real sense strangers to ourselves right not only in the the cognitive biases we have and all the logical fallacies we indulge ourselves in but also in matters of the heart and the spirit if you will so that i think is my my one of my big takeaways yeah i think that uh we might just end it there i'll just close by saying that i think that Relating this back to the first part of our discussion, that <clears throat> especially in reference to the like the young men we were talking about and the young women, um, basically having no idea who they are or who you know the the opposite sex is, that if if young young adults were to read novels like this, they like first of all, I think there's like a type of willful ignorance on the part of men when it comes to understanding women and specifically when it comes to um like putting the effort into to to yeah putting the effort into to understand women you see those memes and jokes like the you know the guy with the the like 10,000 page manual and it's like you know volume 1 of 30 of how to understand women right well <laughs> it's funny but um, most guys wouldn't even read, try to read, you know, volume one. Um, but if you, if you read some of these stories, you might actually start to understand where women are coming from and vice. Well, I guess if, if women read these, you know, then they've already got, they, they, like I said, you know, maybe women have a, a better understanding of men than, uh, than vice versa. But I think that at least a lot of these young girls too, um, might learn something and actually give them because they have they're so lacking in just the the very basics of life experience when it comes to just interacting with people to actually read some stories w that show real dynamics um both the the painful ones and the and the the ecstatic ones that that might that that um that vicarious experience might actually give them some experience that is totally lacking in their lives which is leading to these um 
these states of having no stable sense of self and gender, you know, sex is a big part of that. And that's, you know, that's why we've got this, this thing now that didn't exist 20 years ago, like gender fluidity, gender fluidity is not a thing. Um, this is a, at least as far as I'm concerned, uh, you know, a sign of a, a lack of a stable sense of self. And a lot of these young girls, especially, but young boys too, just, they haven't, they don't know themselves. They haven't found themselves and they're so, and they're confused. And because of that confusion, that confusion is then, um, um, reinforced and reified. It's like that confusion and that lack of a sense of self that is then imputed on them. It's like, that is your sense of self. Your lack of a sense mm. of self is your sense of self, and and it's a positive thing. Well, how about um, actually trying to find that sense of self? And um, you know, one way to do it might be to read some romance novels. So, um, like we said, uh, an unexpected uh, source of of underground knowledge, um, you know, in a place that you wouldn't expect it. So, if you, yeah. Check out Mary Balog. Um, if you're interested, you could always comment on the show and we can maybe suggest some other authors too. But I mean, with 90-something novels, I think you can just check out some Mary Balog and see if you like it or not. And uh, with that said, take care. Talk to you later.